Good morning, James North. Would you pray with me? We are thankful, O oh God, for the opportunity we have to dive into your word. Would you now take your word and penetrate our hearts with it? For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you ever grow tired of wickedness, but it's easy to grow tired of wickedness. Just if you Google the last couple of days in Canada, crimes in Canada, you'll find two men were injured in shootings in Winnipeg. A teen was stabbed in Vancouver, left in critical condition. Another young man was killed in the Vancouver area. Edmonton Drug Lab was found that was um, abusing hundreds of, of uh, drug users. Tim Hortons in Hamilton was robbed at knife point. But you don't have to look across our neck to see wickedness. You can look at your own heart. And even in the inclination of, of our own heart, we realize it's inclined toward evil. It's inclined towards wickedness. When at times our own pride or our, God, our greed, whatever it may be, just seems to continually to creep up in our lives. And God is always, only, ever against evil. You've heard me say that before. God is always, only, ever against evil, against sin. God hates sin. And so when we come to an encounter like the flood, God wiping out all of the created order because of wickedness is what God does except for eight people. If you have your Bibles, Genesis 6, I'm going to start at the first verse. If it, save a few verses. When human beings began to increase and born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were end with humans forever. They are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were also on the earth in those days, and also afterward they were sons of God and children by them. And they were heroes of old, men of renown. The wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, that every inclination only evil all, all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made. The Lord God said, I will wipe from the face. God here, as, as he begins to offer, people are being born. And Lot's eternality. And he says, I'm going to give it 120 years. To about 120 years. And after the flood, that is generally true. There's a few people that live longer than that. The human lifespan is to the range of 120 years. But some would suggest that God is saying that in 120 years, I'm going to wipe humanity away, that 120 years from this observation, I'm going to flood the earth. Many commentators will lean in that direction. Which is true? We don't know. That the sons of God are mating with the daughters of humans. Sons of God are mentioned a couple of times in Scripture. In Job, they're mentioned in angels. They're mentioned in reference to angels or fallen angels. And so here I am going to being referred to as the sons. I don't believe this is Seth's line and Cain's line being contrasted and compared. Fallen as demons were allowed to at that time marry and have these angels are doing that and in it. And it says that they are heroes of old. They are men of renown. And so you have the sons of God and the daughters of humans being contrasted. You have God's eternality and humanity's frailty being contrasted. And finally, you have humanity's wickedness and Noah's righteousness being contrasted, though we don't see Noah's righteousness till verse 9. But you have here God saying how he's troubled, regretting, having created humanity. It says this in verse 5, Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was evil all the time. Note the comprehensiveness of it. 
Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was evil, only evil all the time. This speaks to total depravity. Total depravity is not that we are in every way as bad as we can be. It's that we are not in any way as good as God would want us to be. It's not that we are in every way as bad as we can be. It's total because it comprehensively, sin comprehensively affects us in every area of our lives, in our emotions, in the way that we think, in our thought process, in the way that we act, in our behavior. Sin affects us in every way. And then verse 9, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. He walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Now note this, three words or, or descriptions here of Noah. He was righteous, he was blameless, and he walked faithfully with God. Righteousness and blameless carry very similar connotations. Right with God, meaning in right standing with him. Righteous meaning one who is stood apart or set apart for righteousness. Blameless meaning no one could point a finger at Noah and say, this is where you've sinned. He was blameless among his people. He was righteous before God, and he walked faithfully with God. Enoch, described in chapter 5 that we didn't look at, is also someone who's described who walks faithfully with God. And walking faithfully with God would probably at least entail three things. One, you're God's friend. You're God's friend. You walk with people you're friends with. And so he's walking with God. Two, they like God's company. Noah and Enoch enjoyed God's company. You walk with people whose company you enjoy. So Noah is described here as God's friends. He walks with God, liking God's company. And then lastly, going in the same direction. They're going in the same direction. Now next, I want you to note the pattern that's about to emerge in this, in this passage. This pattern carries us through the next two and a half chapters of Scripture. It's on the screen in front of you. It's from Alan Ross, though I've, I've, one of the commentators, though I have altered some of the language. I want you to know at the two onsets, the top and bottom, God resolves to destroy the human race for its wickedness at the bottom. The Lord resolves not to destroy humanity by flood again. The two in the middle, Noah builds an ark. Then the next one from the bottom, Noah builds an altar. Next one from the top, the Lord commands Noah's family to enter the ark. Next one from the bottom, God commands Noah's family to leave the ark. Next one again from the top, the flood begins. From the bottom, fourth up, the earth dries. Next one again, down from the top, five down. The flood's devastation is comprehensive and covers the mountain. Again, five from the bottom. The flood recedes and the mountains are visible. And in the middle, God remembers Noah. And this is an incredible pattern that you see through these chapters. It makes the flow of the chapters make sense. And it's important for us to note that. So firstly, God resolves to destroy the human race for its wickedness. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. It was full of violence. God had saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. God says, for humanity's sin, for its wickedness, not only am I going to destroy humanity, but I'm actually going to destroy the earth. I'm going to wipe the earth clean. I'm going to create a clean slate, Noah. There's about to be a recreation, and you're going to be at the center of the recreation. So Noah builds an ark. I'm going to bring floodwaters, verse 17, on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. 
Every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. Again, note the comprehensive language. Sin comprehensively, all evil, all the time, every inclination. Now, again, every creature, everything on earth will perish. Note verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and their sons' wives, with you. You are to bring into the ark two of every living creature, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will, be, will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded. Now a couple of thoughts. One is this. God commands Noah to build an ark. Nothing of this stature is known in human history until at least three millennia after Noah lives. So what God calls Noah to build is magnificent. And how God allows Noah to, to create it, likely Noah built this ark in dry land in the middle of nowhere. It doesn't tell us exactly how long it took Noah to build the ark, but if you follow the timeline through this uh, chapter, we're probably talking 25 to 40 years. It took Noah to build the ark. So Noah is building an ark that's so big that no one has seen anything like it before in human history. It would be vastly larger than anything anyone had ever seen. The boats they would have used in this day on the water would constantly would have had leaking with them. And so for the Lord to allow this ark to not leak is a miracle in and of itself in the way he allowed Noah to construct it. But this account of the flood that's here that God grants us uh, here in Scripture talks about how God is going to use the flood waters to destroy the earth. We saw in Genesis how there was chaos there, how God, water is often used as that which is untamable and under this storm. They fear disciples who were predominantly fishermen. Yeah, chapter 6, I don't know what verse that is actually. Noah, go to the ark, you and your family, be two of chapter 7. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean, one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep with their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth. For 40 days and 40 nights I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I've made. So God says generally I'm going to call creatures in two by two. But there's a group I'm going to call in by sevens. And it's the exception. Don't need to make a big deal about this. I don't believe God is saying generally I'm going to be calling in creatures two by two. Notice it's the Lord who says he'll bring them in. But then he says to Noah there are some of which there'll be seven. And Noah simply does as the Lord commands him. Now I want you to notice in this passage that as Noah's building a large ark, more sizable than any structure known in human history, probably for at least three millennium after Noah exists, uh, Noah is alive, uh, there on the earth, in dry land, probably in the middle of nowhere. Not, we're not talking the desert here, but probably a fair ways away from a body of water. Imagine the ridicule he would have gone through. Noah, what are you doing? Neighbors. Noah, what's going on? I mean, Noah, what are you building? Noah, what has God told you again? I mean, the ridicule when the inclination of everyone's heart was evil all the time, the onslaught of ridicule would have been relentless. People would have just continually come at Noah, mocking him, making fun of him, laughing at him. 
laughing at his righteousness, laughing at his walk with God, lacking, laughing at his obedience. Verse 6 of chapter 7. So Noah was 600 years when the floodwaters came on the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. So you find here twice again that Noah obeys God or does exactly as God has commands. But here you also find the creatures come to Noah. Noah doesn't go up to out looking for them. God graciously brings the creatures God wants preserved to Noah. So the flood begins. So after seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth in the 600 year of Noah's life. On the seventh day of the seventh month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heaven were opened and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Some would suggest this is the first time there was ever rain on the planet. I don't know if that's true or not. We do know in the Garden of Eden that Eden was watered by springs that allowed the water to kind of come up and mist the earth. And so we have both those bursting forth, God says, he allows those to burst forth and the heavens to open up. This could possibly be the first time that there's rain. But as both the sprigs open up from the ground and they just kind of well up and the rain begins to fall, the earth would have flooded very quickly. Now flood myth is found in a variety of traditions. Babylonian writing has flood myth written in it. Very different. The flood was only for six days. It was because the gods, quote-unquote, small g, were angry with the talkativeness, the loud noise. They were just annoyed with humanity. It wasn't about humanity's sin. It was about humanity's annoyance. One of the small g gods decided that he would save a portion of humanity. So he found a man with favor, told him to build a large structure, very different than this structure. A group of people went on it, not just that man and his family, but others. And then at the end of the flood, as the flood wreaks havoc in a greater way, according to their tradition, than they thought it would because it's God's battling, small g. At the end of it, that person sacrifices sacrifices to the gods. They smell the aroma and realize, oh yeah, we like this smell. And, uh, and they decide that they won't do this again. But you have other accounts of floods in other traditions at that time. We believe, of course, that this one predates them all. All the others are taken from this, and that this is the initial flood, the flood, because this is God's word to us. Verse 17, the flood's devastation is comprehensive. It covers even the mountains. So for 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose, increased on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water, and the, they rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the high, entire heavens were covered, and the waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of 15 cubits. So you see here God explaining how comprehensive this was. I have not only flooded the earth, but I have covered the mountains and gone beyond that. And then again, comprehensive. Just note the word every. So every living creature, verse 21, that moved along the land perished. The birds, the livestock, the wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all of humanity. 
Everything on dry land that had breath in its life and its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark. God's judgment over sin is comprehensive. God hates sin. He hates sin. He hates sin so much that he will comprehensively wipe out the entire planet and start over with Noah and those, the seven people with him, in order to redeem a people for himself. Matthew 24 reminds us of God's judgment. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man, that's Jesus. For in the days uh, before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up till the day Noah entered the ark. He said people were just going on about their lives. They were eating and drinking. They were just enjoying life. They were marrying. They were giving in marriage. Just going on their regular, everyday activities of life. They knew nothing what was going to happen. I mean, they saw this ark being built, those that were in Noah's vicinity. And the flood took them all away. And that will, that's what will happen at the coming of the Son of Man. Genesis 7, verse 24, the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. Too often, we have this misconception that Noah was on the ark for 40 days and 40 nights because that's how much it rained. Noah and his family were on the ark for basically a year. For a year of their lives, they lived on the ark. But God remembered Noah and the wild animals and the livestock that were in the ark. When the Bible says God remembered, it doesn't mean like God forgot and was like up in the heavens doing whatever he's doing. And he's like, oh yeah, Noah. Remember here means God is committed to his commitments. God is committed to seeing through faithfully that which he has agreed to do. That's God remembering. It's God accomplishing that which he has agreed he will do. It's God fulfilling his promises. It's God being faithful to his commitments. So he sends a wind over the earth. The waters recede. The springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heaven close. The rain stops falling. The waters recede steadily from the earth, and at the end of 150 days, the water's gone down. And on the seventh day of the seventh month, 17th day, sorry, the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to recede until the 10th month. On the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains were visible. So you had the tops of the mountains being covered, and now you have the tops of the mountains are visible. And so after 40 days, Noah opened a window. He sent out a raven. It kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water receded from the, ground to the, from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because the water was still all over the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand. He took a dove and brought it back into the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out a dove. When the dove returned with him that evening, he had a freshly plucked olive leaf. And no one knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent out the dove, and it did not return. That must have been a day of excitement for Noah and his family. I mean, could you imagine living with your family on an ark for a year? I mean, we have lived in COVID times where we feel bound up in our homes and can still take walks and are often still going to offices at times, at least periodically. Imagine being with your family in the ark for a year with all those animals and the incredible stench. 
We'll leave it at that. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. And by the 27th day of the second month, the earth was now completely dry. So God commands Noah to leave the ark. God says to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife, your sons and your wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, all the creatures that move along the ground so that you can multiply on the earth, be fruitful, and increase a number on it. We've heard that before. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wives, uh, and his wife, sorry, and his son's wives, and all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and the birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark one kind after another. This is a new creation. No, it's very similar to the creation account. The waters regress. The land appears. Vegetation begins to produce itself. And humanity inhabits the earth. Very similar to the created order. Noah is, in this sense, Adam-like. He's Adam-like as the representative of humanity. And so you have here, just as in Genesis, God separates the water from the land, vegetation appearing after dry lands appear, appears, um, and humanity inhabiting the earth. This is now happening in this order here as God is explaining it in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. So then Noah builds an altar to the Lord. He takes some of the clean animals and clean birds. He sacrifices them to him. This is a reminder that Noah knows who he is. He knows that he is a servant of the living God. He obeys God, he walks with God, and he humbly sacrifices to God. I mean, Noah has just watched all of humanity be destroyed. If any human being had the right to be arrogant, to be proud, it was Noah. God saved me. I mean, Noah didn't know that God called him blameless, righteous, and the man who walked with him. But he would have known there was something fairly significant about who he was when everyone else died and he is left alive. But he's not arrogant. He's not proud. He humbly sacrifices these sacrifices to the Lord, knowing that God is worthy and he is not. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans. Even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, I will never again destroy all the living creatures that I've done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. So just briefly as I close for a few moments, what is this that we take from here? I want you to note five things. The first is this. Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. He was a friend with God. He enjoyed God's company. He was going in the same direction as God. For those of us today that are listening that are God's children, we've been saved. We repented of our sin and trusted in Jesus Christ and alone for salvation. He's left us his spirit. Jesus promises at the Great Commission that he is with us always to the very end of the age. He will never leave or forsake us. And his spirit is within us. God has left us his spirit. And we're told in scripture, passages in Galatians, Galatians 5.16, Galatians 5.25, that we can walk by the spirit. And by walking by the spirit, we too can walk with God. We're given the privilege of walking with God. Through these COVID times when, again, many of us are being isolated and alone. God is with you. He's never left you. He's never forsaken you. 
and he's walking with you by his spirit. Walk with him. Walk well with him. Cry out to him. He's there with you wherever you are because he loves you immensely. Secondly, the wicked will be destroyed in the judgment. As they were in the days of Noah, so they will be in Christ's return. The wicked will comprehensively be destroyed by God. God hates wickedness. He absolutely hates wickedness. And he will cast all wickedness out into hell for all of eternity. That's what God will do. Because God hates wickedness. He hates it. And just as he destroyed the wicked on the earth then, so the wicked, the scripture on a number of occasions talks about how the wicked will perish. God will cast them out. They will not enjoy eternal, abundant life with him. They will have to face eternal life without him. Without him. And so those of you that are listening to me today who haven't repented of your sin and trusted him, repent and trust Christ. He is our salvation, him alone. Thirdly, Noah obeyed the Lord. Four times that theme is emphasized, Noah's obedience. In spite of ridicule, in spite of mockery, in spite of people's misunderstandings, Noah walks faithfully and obeys the Lord. And God calls us to, to number four. God is faithful to his children. Listen to this, Second Peter verse, uh, chapter 3, a couple of verses here. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body and made alive in the spirit. That's Jesus. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Peter then pauses, not the removal of dirt from the body. He says, I'm not talking about water itself, baptism itself, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who's gone through heaven and is at the right hand with angels, authorities, powers, and submission to him. Peter here relates Christ's salvation for us to God's salvation to Noah. He says first that Christ descended to proclaim to the spirits his victory. I believe that when we hear the Apostles' Creed talk to us, about how Jesus descended into hell, that this is what it's referring to. I don't believe Jesus' descent into hell was for any punishment. On the cross, he cried out, it is finished. He'd fully satisfied the Father's wrath on the cross, which is why he could say to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. But as that is occurring, I believe he did descend into hell to declare his victory to Satan and its realm of demons that God says he has chained though allows still in their change to wreak havoc on the earth, that Jesus descended to declare his victory. As he's talking about that, Peter then begins to explain that that incredible salvation offered to us, Jesus' victory, is what we waited for from the days of Noah while the ark was being built. That salvation, in it, eight people were saved, that water that saved them, the same water that destroyed a group is the water that saved them. It symbolizes baptism. And he says, I don't want you to think I'm talking about water that simply removes dirt. I'm talking about the pledge of a clear conscience. I'm talking about your faith in Christ. What he's saying is just as God was faithful to Noah, God is faithful to us. 
Just as God is faithful to Noah, God is faithful to his children. Just as God remembered Noah, God remembers you. God's covenant with you has been sealed by the blood of his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. God's covenant with Noah hadn't been sealed with blood yet. We'll start to look at that covenant next week. God's covenant with Abraham will be sealed with blood of animals. But God's covenant with us, God's promise with us to declare that he is on our side and his forgiveness is available to us is found in the accomplished work of God the Son, Jesus Christ, and it cannot be broken. And just as God was able to save Noah through the waters, God will save us from his own impending judgment because of the accomplished work of Christ. It is good news. It is good news for anyone today who looks at their own heart, myself included, and sees our wickedness. Is it not good news that the blood of Christ covers our wickedness from his wrath? And he saves us. He gloriously saves us. Jesse, you guys and the team can come up. And then lastly, God restores his created order. He created a new heaven. He will one day, sorry, create a new heaven and a new earth. And just as in the days of Noah, God washed the earth clean to create a new earth, reestablish his created order. We saw this already as the water receded, as the land emerged, as the vegetation grew, as humanity was called to multiply again over the earth, so one day when Christ returns, he will call a recreated new order. God says that he will create a new heavens and a new earth and will be ushered into a place I actually believe we will dwell on the new earth. We will be ushered into a place where there'll be no sin, where there'll be no temptation. Is that not great news? You'll never be tempted again. Where there'll be no disease. Where there'll be no death. Where COVID will be vanquished forever. It'll be gone. Where Satan will no longer have any reigning place because he will be vanquished. Where the sinful nature will no longer reign in any way because it will be vanquished. Where death itself, the last enemy, we looked at this Easter Sunday, will also be vanquished. We'll be in a place where God will be at centerpiece forever and ever. Amen. We look forward to that day. And God says, I want you to know what's going to get you there. The accomplished work of Jesus Christ. And I have made that covenant with you. And so today, if you're a child of God, if you're someone who has renounced your sin, repented of your sin, and trusted in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation, we're going to take a moment and celebrate communion. The top of this little container, or the bread that you've gotten at home, represents the body of Christ. It is the body of Christ broken for us. It reminds us that Christ incarnated himself, and the juice reminds us that his blood was shed for us. The juice reminds us that Christ himself had to go through the wrath of the Father on the cross so that we could be saved. If you're not a believer today, I would encourage you not to take communion. But I would encourage you to email or call us to let us know that God has been at work in your life, that you're here and you're listening, you're watching us online, and that you would love to know Jesus Christ as Savior if that's what God's speaking of you today, to you today. The Bible's really clear that this is to be taken for believers as we celebrate Christ. 
It also reminds us that there's division between us and another believer, that we're to see that division reconciled. We're to go to the person we're divided with, and we're to reconcile that area of division. So I'd encourage you today, if there's an area of division between you and another believer, to reconcile in that area. I would encourage you today, if you're not a believer, not to take this cup, but to call or email us. We'd love to share with you the joy and hope we have in Christ. But if today you're one of his children, I would encourage you to take this bread and take this cup over the next couple of songs and simply celebrate our living God, Jesus, whose covenant with you is unbreakable, taking you from this place where we are aliens and strangers through the ark, as God has said in Peter, to another plane where there'll be no sin, no disease, no sickness, no Satan, no death, where God will be at centerpiece forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for how you saved Noah and his family in the recreation of all of humanity. And we thank you, God, that you not only covenanted with him, but you covenanted with us. And we thank you that we stand here today and sit here today in a greater covenant because the covenant that we are a part of is accomplished by the work of your son, our Savior Jesus. And so as we celebrate his body and his blood that covers our sin from your wrath, God, today we are reminded of his work in our lives. And we're thankful for it in Jesus' name. Amen.